Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense with Kirk and John. Hope you're having a great uh, Saturday morning here. I've got my cup of coffee. I hope you got yours. And hope whatever you're doing, you're enjoying your Saturday morning as we hopefully get uh, a little bit more spring-like in our weather coming up. It's been a cold, cold week. Kind of disappointing. Like every day I was getting up and thinking, oh, is it going to be warm enough to you know, walk around without a jacket and stuff. Well, we'll get there. I have faith. <laughs> anyway, the as you all know, the Chauvin trial has been going on for a couple of weeks now. And I haven't really commented on it because I um, kind of wanted to see how it unfolded and to provide my comments and such, uh, you know, after it had been uh, unfolded a bit. And uh, I can tell you this, this has been one of those cases where a couple of very interesting features came about. And uh, one thing was, you know, a a pretty common phenomenon that we see in cases where we have a battle of experts. And I want to talk a little bit about that because what was involved here was a combination of, you know, medical science, um, biology, things like that. But also there was some opinion evidence on things that are not necessarily science-based. And we see that quite a bit in litigation. And some point that out as perhaps a flaw in the justice system. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about how experts and their role in the system has um, evolved over the years and how there have been efforts to kind of rein in the concept of you know a hired gun or a witness that is extremely biased towards one side or the other. And a lot of this goes back to a series of cases. Um, you've heard me talk about it on the show before, but the Daubert case is a big case from the United States Supreme Court that deals with uh, the admissibility of expert testimony. And it used to be, prior to that decision, and actually for quite some time here in Wisconsin, uh, an expert could testify about an opinion as long as it was based on, you know, some some factual information, and basically could uh, put their credentials forth and the rationale for their opinion, and then just be subject to vigorous cross examination. The theory being that if it was a bunch of nonsense, then the opposing counsel would be able to expose that in some way. Well, over the years, it became uh, accepted that there are uh, very easy ways to get um, an expert with their supposed qualifications and um, credentials to be able to say things uh, and that it's quite manipulable. And it, it really puts the opposing counsel in a position where if it's just the lawyer who's saying, well, why do you really believe that? Or, you know, putting it to the test can be somewhat ineffective if the, you know, the lawyer doesn't have the same level of expertise that the the expert has. So then that, in turn, call, calls for a competing expert that gets hired and brought into the case. And, and this was back, you know, b- before Daubert was decided, there were a lot of um, trials that just came were starting to turn into a contest between who could call the most experts and who could pay the most money to get you know people to say things in certain ways and everybody had a financial stake in the outcome and it really got out of control so 
Daubert was designed to rein that in so that when someone testifies as an expert, they truly do have um, an opinion that's been tested, peer-reviewed. There have been studies and so forth that support that opinion. And all that information then is subject to review by the court. And the court can determine, uh, the trial court can determine if, in fact, um, the person's opinion is something that has enough reliability and enough accepted uh, enough of an accepted view in the scientific or relevant community that um, it can go before the jury. But another big thing about you know, Daubert issues is that the opposing side should have the opportunity to fully understand what that expert is going to say, what they're going to be basing their opinions on, and and if there's any factual information that they are relying upon that it gets provided to the other side. So that's kind of the background about how experts work in the justice system. Um, ironically, the Daubert case was a civil case, and um, that's where you saw, back then anyway, the most abuses in you know, getting somebody to come in and render an opinion that was clearly just based on uh, being paid to say so. But it's bled over, as we all know, into the criminal justice system. And if you watch practically any crime TV show, you're familiar with this whole concept of forensics. And by definition, that term forensics means that it's, you know, a a procedure or an opinion that's been developed in support of litigation, typically prosecution. And most, you know, quote unquote, forensic scientists are people that uh, work for the government or work for the prosecution. And they not only uh, analyze evidence, but they sort of create ways as if they are appearing to be on the cutting edge of science and, uh, you know, rendering opinions about things in support of a conviction. Now, if you've listened to my show over the years, you know that there have been, uh, you know, alarms going off all over the place about how forensic sciences have been abused by prosecutors in portraying things as being much more certain than they really are. And then, of course, we rely on human beings who do laboratory testing, who sometimes either make mistakes or overstate the confidence that they have in a particular result. And uh, oftentimes because there's a huge system in place that sort of produces evidence in support of prosecutions, there's a large tendency to um, obfuscate or not really uh, put forth where there are weaknesses or problems within that system. So what we saw in the Chauvin trial was very interesting because there were uh, competing experts on kind of a very important issue, and that had to do with uh, mechanism and cause of death. And we heard from a prosecution expert that had uh, talked about how basically uh, the death was caused by um, you know, an overdose basically of carbon dioxide in the in um, the decedent system and how that had accumulated after um, the oxygen had been cut off from the brain. But to make things complicated, uh, we saw that there was also the presence of some controlled substances and uh, apparently an issue that related to the presence of carbon monoxide in someone's system. 
uh, and what effect that has on the potential for causing death. And, you know, this is kind of a fuzzy gray area in terms, because a lot of, it's guesswork, you know, it's it's reconstructing things, it's timelines, it's relying on some numbers and some, or discrediting other parts of it, and then working in other contributing factors. And so, you know, we saw the prosecution kind of put forth this theory about um, how um, death was initiated, and then uh, some competing information that more or less disagreed with that. So um, you got to wonder. Of course, this is supposed to be helpful for the jury because the jury wants to know what uh, you know, what sort of scientific testing was done. What does that mean? How does it contribute to this whole problem of the knee being placed on a neck for you know an extended period of time, and so on? But we also saw some ex you know quote unquote quasi expert testimony from people having different opinions about whether this was an acceptable use of force under the circumstances. And the knee to the neck is not an authorized trained method. And we hear testimony about that, but we also heard testimony from the defense how they called a guy that talked about how um, under the circumstances it was objectively reasonable. Sort of acknowledging the fact that when you're in the moment and you have to make a decision about what to do, um, there you can't look up a book and study it chapter and verse and and do kind of a checklist as to what you're supposed to be doing. It has to be fluid. It has to... Um, go with the situation, but you know, all of this kind of flies in the face of the fact that the video footage that was shown in the trial um, really kind of speaks for itself, and that's you kind of have to wonder, you know, does all this other stuff that is being added to the mixture make a huge difference in terms of what the jury would decide? Well, we also saw some interesting things happen when it comes to the use of rebuttal evidence and whether it's proper or not. And we're going to talk about that when we come back from the break. All right, so we're talking about kind of a synopsis of what's happening in the Chauvin trial um, and the murder allegations of uh, the death of George Floyd. And as the uh, defense case was coming to a close, the prosecution made a motion to present rebuttal evidence. And this is kind of confusing to a lot of people, so I wanted to talk about what rebuttal evidence is and what the theory behind it is. Essentially, the idea behind rebuttal is, uh, well, that term is used actually in two different contexts. Uh, primarily what it means is presenting evidence that counters something else that the other side has has presented. So clearly, um, when the prosecution presents evidence the defense rebuts it, so to speak, by presenting their own evidence, but that isn't necessarily what we call rebuttal. Rebuttal is used in the context of what the prosecution may seek to do after they have heard what the defense does. And the concept of rebuttal evidence is that it kind of lies in the fact that the prosecution has the burden of proof in every case um, for each and every element of the offense beyond a reasonable doubt. And in order to do so, they have to present things, you know, evidence, testimony, facts, 
the, the defense can then challenge that with their own evidence that they present. But because the defense got to do so in response to what the prosecution did, then the prosecution then can have one more crack at it to respond to what just came about. So let's back up just in case you don't know this. In every case, the prosecution always goes first. Every single case. Um, prosecution starts by calling their witnesses. They present their evidence before the defense does. Um, now, the defense can consist of many different aspects and many different uh, facets of what can be done, but the defense isn't required to do anything in any case. Um, they can just simply sit there and say, we're not doing anything, and that actually should and could be fine if the prosecution can't meet their burden of proof. And I've actually had trials where it came time for the defense to present something, and I said, no, judge, nothing. And then I still win um, because it is focused on whether the prosecution has proven the case beyond a reasonable doubt. So it's not to say that in every case there is a necessity to present competing evidence um, because the evidence is on its own is supposed to rise to a level beyond a reasonable doubt. But because every case does involve its own nuances, um, and especially in, in this case where um, there was differences of opinion that could be presented, especially as it relates to experts and, um, you know, correct use of force and things like that. It's natural that the prosecution would want to come in and rebut some of the things that were presented by the defense. Now, technically, and honestly, I don't know the minute details of Minnesota law, but I know that it does and has to, in fact, closely mirror the constitutional requirements for notice and presentation of, you know, d discovery and things like that, because it has to, just like every state in our country. Um, discovery in and of itself is regulated by statute, but it has to be along the lines of what provides due process to a defendant. In other words, um, that's part of the due process clause is knowing what evidence is being used and the opportunity to confront that evidence. That's actually the confrontation clause in the Sixth Amendment. But um, in order to confront that evidence, you need to know what it is. And there have been experiments in various states over the decades where, you know, mostly in an effort to streamline the judicial process, they limit what um, prosecution has to disclose. Um, pretty ill-advised, if you think about it, because um, that doesn't support justice. But occasionally we do see prosecutors fighting to change the rules so that they don't have to provide everything and that they can just give enough to convince the person that they're guilty and then extract a, a guilty plea from the person. And we've talked before on the show about how Marcy's Law impacts that in several different ways. And frankly, in my opinion, contributes to more cases going to trial, fewer cases being resolved correctly, and um, really just kind of uh, confusing the whole system into not, not really seeking justice anymore, but trying to follow all these little rules along the way. So um, the prosecution in the Chauvin case comes after the defense rests and says, judge, we have, uh, we want to recall our expert, Dr. Tobin and address some of the things that the defense expert 
talked about. Now, that's legit, because if you think about it, um, their expert had to go first because it was during the prosecution's case in chief. The natural order of events is that the defense then calls their witnesses, and that um, witness could be asked questions based on what came out during the prosecutor's case in chief. That witness in the case in chief for the prosecution didn't know what the defense witness was going to say. So it's only natural that if there is something that the original witness, in this case, Dr. Tobin, could get on the stand and address that was opined by the, the defense wax expert, that opportunity should be given. And here's the rule. I mean, you should really look back and think in terms of admissibility and the judge's decision on whether to allow something or not. Well, there's the basic question of relevance, obviously. Does it have something to do with this case? Does it stray outside of um, what's permissible and trying to keep a focus on what what the elements of the offense are and if this evidence makes any of those elements more or less likely to be true? So, you know, you can't come in and say you want to do rebuttal for something that you didn't do in your case in chief and then call it rebuttal. Uh, prosecutors do that sometimes. Sometimes they'll, you know, they'll forget to call a witness or they'll forget to ask a question and then they want to put the person back on the stand and they're, re- they're calling it rebuttal when it really isn't. Um, but uh, judges have leeway to allow those sorts of things and if it's appropriate under the circumstances, they, they should. Now, there was a little bit of a kink in this particular case because there had been some additional testing evidence. It was uh, some medical evidence that, uh, according to the defense, was not disclosed until, you know, the evening prior to the hearing the next day where the judge was going to talk about what sort of rebuttal would be allowed. And it was a very, very late disclosure. You know, we call that a uh, an 11.59 disclosure, meaning right before midnight. Um and the defense, you know, complained and said, hey, if they had this for a while, why didn't we get it till now? And so on. Well, okay. <laughs> this is another aspect of rebuttal that is interesting because, you know, for the def- from the defense, and let's talk strictly about the defense, and things are not equal. It's not an equal playing field, and it's never supposed to be. That was never the design. And when prosecutors say, judge... This is not a level playing field. Well, it never was supposed to be. They have the burden of proof. And that's one of our mechanisms that we have in order to hopefully prevent wrongful convictions. So um, the defense can withhold rebuttal evidence if they so choose. And that's partly because the defense doesn't know exactly what the prosecution is going to do. And they may make a a change in strategy as it relates to if they want to bring something out or not. And sometimes this rebuttal evidence that the defense may withhold, um, you have to wait and see if if it becomes relevant. It's something that's not obviously part of the case, but then something happens and this this other evidence becomes uh, relevant all of a sudden. Well, those same rules don't apply to the prosecution. And if they have any kind of testing data whatsoever that relates to the case, it is supposed to be timely disclosed. 
So here we are, you know, at the end of the trial that's been going on for weeks, and the prosecution's like, oh yeah, there's this new stuff, not really new, not new to us, but new to you, that uh, our expert wants to talk about on rebuttal. And the judge, probably correctly, ruled that if the prosecution was aware of it all along, and they, for whatever reason, through neglect or on purpose, decided not to disclose it, um, well, they suffer the consequence of not being able to reference it or use it uh, in response to, as part of rebuttal. Again, because the rules are different, and they did they did have an obligation to disclose that, and the judge was very curious about how you know, they had an expert ready to talk about this stuff, yet they had not provided the underlying data that would be the basis of that opinion to the defense. Very, very fishy. So, all right, we'll talk more about this when we come back. Welcome back. Uh, continuing our discussion about the show and trial and what's been going on in their case in Minnesota. Um, allegations of, you know, homicide involving the death of George Floyd. And uh, former officer Chauvin... Um, his defense team, you know, present a lot of interesting information. And right before the break, we were talking about the fact that the judge uh, excluded some evidence that the uh, prosecution's rebuttal witness was going to reference. And as I said right before the break, this had been evidence that the prosecution had known about for some time and had failed to disclose to the defense. And therefore, the judge said, well, it can't, you can't ask questions about that. But this raises an interesting issue because, you know, I always like to take a step back and look at the bigger philosophical reasons why we have rules and what it is supposed to accomplish. I mean, in an ideal world, everything about every case would be somehow known and fully, accurately, appropriately collected, provided to both sides. Both sides have time to prepare to look at everything like practically under a microscope and uh, then present the evidence in a, an orderly fashion. But we all know that um, the limitations on <laughs> the system, you know, it, al it always falls short of perfection. And that's how most trials go. You know, things get started and then something happens where somebody made a mistake or somebody forgot to do something or somebody did this or somebody did that or a witness says something they're not supposed to or whatever. And then the judge is faced with this very difficult and really a pragmatic problem in the sense that it's very hard to get a trial done um, with all... It's like herding cats. It really is. It's a, a complicated process. And leading up to trial, a judge is going to be mostly concerned about the mechanics of it. Uh, how do we let jurors know uh, how long of a commitment they're going to need? Do we have the space? Do we have the time? Do we have the resources? And comparing that with every other case that's pending in that jurisdiction with that judge. And it's a universal problem in every court in every place, probably throughout the world, but I know specifically about the United States, you have court congestion. It takes a long time and a lot of planning to do an actual trial. 
So look at the judge sort of as a resource manager in that process. And something that lawyers who practice regularly in the justice realm can tell you, uh, one of the biggest challenges of our professional lives is being fully prepared for everything all the time. And, you know, good lawyers with experience certainly do that and strive to do that and get better at it over their careers. But um, the true challenge is that there's more to do than there is time to do it when you haven't developed years and years of instinct. And it, I, I know that this is kind of um, a controversial subject, but, you know, it doesn't take much to become a prosecutor or a defense lawyer. There's no standard by which you have to um, demonstrate proficiency in that area, and there's no experience requirement for either job, at least not here in Wisconsin. And and for, for that matter, there's really no requirement anywhere in the United States. So that's why in prosecutors' offices, we often see someone who is fresh out of law school. It's their first job. It's a low-paying government job. You know, they take that as a either because they can't get anything else or because they have a true interest in what they're doing, but they really lack the experience, the insight, the and the instinct. And that's what I really want to focus on. And that's okay because the prosecution job should be relatively easy. You know, you put together the reports that the cops gave you. You have the cops on the stand. They say stuff, and then you just repeat whatever they said in your closing argument, right? Well, much more difficult for the defense. And that's what I'm really talking about is the fact that juggling cases where you're competing with, uh, sometimes fighting with a judge about how much time is needed in order to fully investigate and and know the case, all the nuances, all the ins, all the outs. You've thought about everything that the other side might do and you've prepared for that. That can't be done unless there's a sufficient amount of experience and the instinct that comes with that experience. For example, somebody who's been in practice for a very short period of time wouldn't be able to go to the last time they you know, brought this issue up, the last time they did a trial in this particular area, or drawing upon years of experience of knowing where, when, and how you you'd get this process done. They're basically starting from scratch. And that significantly limits uh, a defense lawyer's ability to be fully, fully prepared as a judge expects one to be. The net result is that a lot of defense lawyers with limited experience um, end up, you know, not having a full understanding of the case. That sometimes results in the case simply not going to trial because the lawyer hasn't done everything they should. And that makes the judge happy when everybody says, no, there's no trial, judge. You don't need to budget for two or three weeks on your calendar. And when judges see a lot of people doing that, you know, what I'm saying is you're you're not going to get a lot of support from the judiciary or from the prosecution to have standards of practice for the defense. Um, They would prefer to see people not trying very hard is what I'm saying. Maybe that sounds a little harsh, but I think it's true. But um, that was not the case here in the Chauvin trial. The defense lawyers actually are very experienced, and they work together as a team. And 
although the the murder of George Floyd happened, you know, a year ago, um, you know, the the process leading up to all of this has been, um, you know, that's not a ton of time to actually prepare for this kind of case. So it was kind of put on a fast track. I know it might not seem like it, but that's what happened. So again, philosophically speaking, does it, the judge is looking at making sure, doing everything the judge can to, to make this trial stay on the tracks. Like it's a train that's moving 85 miles an hour and the judge is trying to make sure it doesn't run off the tracks. Um, so, like often happens, this issue comes up that, that presented the possibility of the judge having to declare a mistrial. And... A mistrial is a disaster for everybody involved because it means something went wrong and we got to start all over again. There are times when if it's not a, a very serious case that the prosecution might say, well, now we, you know, based on some things that happened the first time around, we might not want to go forward again. But that's very rare. <laughs> I mean, if it was a shoplifting case or something, maybe they would say that. But not in a murder case. I don't think so. So, you know. Everybody in the room is cognizant of the fact that a mistrial needs to be avoided, should be avoided at all costs. And so the judge's ruling on this issue is in the, in the light of, did the prosecution do something so bad that, you know, takes the, the wheels of justice you know, right off the tracks and that balancing and there's a tremendous incentive to not grant a mistrial when that happens because it's so hard <laughs> to get to the point where you're doing a trial. It really is very difficult. So, and it takes months and months and months of planning. And, and if you think that people just show up one day and they say, hey, let's have a trial, it's not that easy at all. So what the judge did is he kind of did a hybrid uh, ruling where he said, okay, I'm going to allow rebuttal because it's rebuttal should be allowed if the defense raised issues that can be um, clarified or if there can be a specific disagreement with something that the defense said, which leads to an interesting argument that the defense made. They said, hey, they shouldn't be allowed to call their uh, prosecution witness again because that person's already stated his opinion. Well, yes and no. The problem is that the defense presented a different opinion that the that the prosecution expert didn't know of or hear about when there was cross-examination. So that's what rebuttal is supposed to be. The problem is that if part of that testimony was going to be based on something that the prosecution had but failed to provide in a timely manner, um, that's a big no-no. And it could very well be that the judge had the option because of the late disclosure to declare mistrial. But um, there's an old saying, trials don't get better the second time around. And that's generally true for both sides. So he made this hybrid ruling. You can't reference any of the stuff that you didn't disclose, but you can call this expert back to the stand and ask very limited questions solely related to what the defense expert testified to. All right, it's time for a break. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Legal Defense. Hope you're enjoying the show. This is a very in-depth discussion about all the legal things that are going on in the show in trial as it winds down to a conclusion. Um, a big, 
big development in the case earlier this week was um, what everybody was kind of waiting for is the defense going to put their client on the stand. And I want to talk about that because that is something that, you know, the general public finds fascinating. Like, you know, what, what goes into that decision? Why would someone not take the stand or for that matter, why would they? Um, you know, it's a complicated decision because a defendant has an absolute right to not testify just like a defendant has an absolute right to testify. There's nothing in this process that should be designed to limit um, a defendant's participation in the case, but at the same time, we learned from uh, prior practices in England before we drafted our constitution and the amendments to it that um, for various reasons, uh, it is not part of a free society if someone can be compelled to be a witness against themselves. And that all has to do, of course, with uh, the idea of bringing, you know, in a lot of trials in, in England before they had reforms of their justice system consisted of bringing the defendant in and they'd actually be locked, you know, in more or less a cage. Um, and if you go way back to like the, what, the 13, 1400s, the cage was suspended, you know, in the room, the defendant's there, and then just gets peppered with questions by various, you know, judicial officials and not jurors, just a bunch of judges that like, try and tell us why on earth you would not be guilty. And then, you know, it's up to the person who's just a lay person, so to speak, battling wits with a bunch of uh, smart Alex that want to make sure that the guy gets convicted or gal. Or, and I, I don't, <laughs> it's funny to study some of those old cases where, you know, what they, what it's all about is, did you say something bad about the king? You know, no, I didn't. Well, I think you did. You're guilty, you know? Or, you know, the witch trials. <laughs> you know, are you a witch or not? And, you know, this interrogation. Um, throw her in a trough and see if she floats kind of thing. So in recognition of the fact that it's in a civilized, quote-unquote, society, uh, you know, we don't haul people in and subject them to interrogation because that's not justice. And it's ultimately acknowledging the fact that in an orderly society that values freedom, it should not have that flavor and feel where one fears uh, that the government will randomly um, collect you, <laughs> imprison you, and uh, subject you to um, arbitrary allegations. So, that, you know, really, it's designed to make sure that the government itself doesn't become out of control. So if you, think, if you think about it, it's kind of a sophisticated thought process if that we're really just saying you have a right to remain silent. We're all familiar with those words, but what does it really mean and why? Well, that's, it is what it means. It means so the government doesn't have... Um, you know, the right itself to compel people to participate in these processes. Now, you got to be there if you're on trial, of course. But imagine if we had a rule that said you can never say anything at a trial. Well, that would be bad, too, because you'd, there'd be plenty of times like, I want to explain to the jury why I'm not guilty. And I will take an oath and I will do so. 
Well, this is an issue that's always covered, really, in every case um, during that jury selection process. And it's, it's always a question that's asked either by the judge or one of the parties where we want to know if the jurors are coming in with an expectation that they're going to hear from the defendant. Um, and technically, nobody knows except that, yeah, everybody does know <laughs> going into this. Um, well, at least the defense does. Uh, you don't start a trial with no idea about whether your client's going to testify or not. You've planned that. You've discussed it thoroughly. It shouldn't come, you know, as a change of plans in the middle of trial, which has happened, of course, but that's not ideal. Um, ultimately, what ends up happening is uh, at some point close to the end of the trial, the judge will ask the defendant personally outside the presence of the jury if he or she is going to testify and if they've fully thought about it and they've received the advice of counsel. They have to hear the voice of the defendant say yes or no, I, I'm going to take the stand, or no, I'm not going to take the stand. And then it goes from there. But, okay, so considerations for one might not take the stand. And I, I really want to emphasize this because there are many, many more considerations than the obvious, and you can't simply come to the conclusion that if someone doesn't make take the stand, that means they're guilty. It doesn't mean that at all. Um, one reason why one might not wish to take the stand is because of very personal reasons, nervousness. Um, maybe that person doesn't feel comfortable, you know, uh, answering questions from two lawyers that have advanced professional degrees and years of experience fighting cases where the defendant is just a person, a regular person who, you know, if you want to ask questions about their field of expertise, they could gladly answer them. But the mechanics of trial, um, you know, are very complicated. And the other thing is, it's, it's very true that um, when anyone's on the stand, uh, they're being scrutinized visually and and through what they he what the jurors hear um, for every little expression on the defendant's face, for every little movement, uh, the body language, the you know, does the person have a nervous tick? Are they looking up? Are they looking down? Are they making eye contact? Are they answering the questions with confidence? What's the tone of their voice? A lot of things that are so subjective that one might hesitate to put that issue in play. And, of course, if it comes, you know, the prosecution will always argue, if the defendant takes the stand, that if you don't believe him, you can't find him not guilty. And I say him, but it could be her, of course. And, of course, that's not the way it's supposed to work, but it's an easy argument to make. And, you know, let's face it, most prosecutors are going into a situation with a, well, theoretically all prosecutors are going into a trial with the firm belief um, in their own conscience and their own mind that the person is absolutely guilty. Otherwise, they wouldn't be there, right? Um, so they're approaching this process in a way where they're going to do everything they can to make the defendant look bad. And it can be in very subtle ways. So that's not supposed to be part of the process. That's not something that we require of defendants because they have an absolute right to remain silent, right? And that's one of those reasons. 
So if one wishes to avail themselves of that protection, it's there in the trial and should be. But of course, we always have people that show up and, you know, there's nothing wrong with this view, but one might say, if I were in that person's shoes, I would definitely take the stand and I would take an oath and I would say, you know, what's going on from my point of view? Because I would want, I personally would want the jury to hear that. And I personally think that the only reason I wouldn't do that is if I'm guilty. Okay. That's actually a good discussion to have when we're selecting a jury because that's, that's a juror who's being honest about their, their feelings about it, but it can also be addressed and really corrected. You know, that's, that's understandable, Mr. Juror, that you would feel that way. And that's a very common view of things. However, you know, you need to be warned, and this usually comes from the judge, you must be warned that if the defendant doesn't take the stand, you cannot hold that against the defense in any way. And you still must do what you're otherwise required to do, which is analyze the prosecution's evidence in terms of have they met their very high burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And that usually, you know, takes care of that issue and jurors will say, yes, yes, okay, you're right, we can't, we can't look at it that way and so on. But here's the interesting thing about this case. You know, a lot of what they are alleging here would have to do with what was going on in Chauvin's mind. What was he thinking in terms of what was necessary? What threat did he perceive? Why did he believe it to be necessary to do what he did? What was the, you know, to, to go through that process in his mind's eye, it appears to me anyway would be a very important part of the case. And that's one of those considerations as to whether you put the defendant on the stand or not. Is there something that only he or she knows that you can't derive from any other source? And it would appear from this case that that might have been true. So anyway, I'm sorry. That's all the time we have for this week. But uh, please tune in next week if you can. Just like you can every Saturday right here on 1330 and 101.5 WHBL. This has been Legal Defense. Have a great weekend.